Well, good morning. I want to encourage you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew 5. We're continuing our series of Upside Down. And uh, it's a privilege and an honor to be able to open up God's Word to you this morning. We have been, uh, we're going to be looking at, if you haven't guessed yet, which beatitude that we're going to be in today. It's Matthew 5, verse 7. Blessed are those who are merciful, for they will be shown mercy. And I don't know about you, but uh, I need a lot of mercy. <laughs> I know when it comes, though, it's, it's easy for us to want mercy. We want uh, the Lord to forgive us. We want the Lord to have mercy on us. But when it comes to, being for, to forgiving others, that's another story. Sometimes we're like the little boy who was saying his prayers as he went down the list of uh, his family asking God to bless them. He omitted his brother's name. And uh, his mother caught it and said, why didn't you pray for Cliff? He said, well, I'm not going to ask God to bless Cliff because he hit me. He's mean to me. He's a jerk. And his mother said, but don't you remember Jesus said to forgive your enemies? And the little boy shot back. He said, that's just the trouble. He's not my enemy. He's my brother. So I think sometimes we all, uh, if we're honest, I think we all struggle with this. And I think as we look at God's word, I pray that our Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit will really minister to us. Let me read the, the passage. I'm going to start Matthew 5, verses 1 through 10 today. And just I'm going to camp on 7, but I just want to let you see the big picture here. It says, uh, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. So just right there, I want to remind all of us as we're going through this series that this is predominantly for disciples. So he was teaching his, those who had chosen to follow him. Uh, it, all these things apply to the crowd, but they're specifically for people who've chosen to follow Christ. It says, he, and he opened his mouth and he taught them saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. If, you're, if you have your text out, and one of the values of you looking at your text on the phone or having the Bible is you can see all of them together. If you're just following me, you're going to only see what we put on the screen. But I want you to see a shift here that's going to start taking place today as we are starting into verse 7. The first four Beatitudes are really often uh, more about our vertical relationship with God. And now the next, the next five or so are going to be really about our relationship with others. And so there's a, there's a horizontal aspect here of, of going from, okay, this is my relationship with God. And if you look at all the first four, and we've, we've gone through each of these, I hope you will take time to kind of meditate on them. And, and even if you haven't heard the messages, to do that. But the, um, the idea here... Is, is that Jesus is really preparing us to show us what it looks like to be a kingdom follower. And I don't know if you read these things and you're feeling like, wow, there's no way I can measure up to any of these. If that's the case, that's the point. 
<laughs> this is not a list of moral things to follow. This is not a list of, of, of just commands to say, okay, go and do this and you'll have a good life. This is not just like, oh, if you do all these things, then you'll, you'll make it to heaven. Really what Jesus is showing us is he's showing us the character of God. And he's saying, you know what, unless, really the character of who he is, he's showing us who he is. He is alive. He's living and breathing. He's speaking. He's healing. And the character qualities of Jesus are what he wants to create in us through his Holy Spirit. And so the purpose of the Sermon on the Mount really is to say, hey, this is an upside-down reality here, and nobody can do this until they put their faith in Jesus Christ and realize that he is their righteousness. He is the one who humbled himself, who became meek. He is the one who, uh, uh, who suffered and died. He mourned, in a sense. He dealt, he dealt with our sin. He is the only one who's pure in heart. And as we're going to look at today, he is the one who's merciful. And so if we want to grow in being merciful, we need to grow in becoming more like Jesus. And if we want to grow in becoming more like Jesus, we need to see him for who he really is. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much that you have not left us in the dark about who you are. God, I thank you that before you gave us commands or gave us any type of instructions for living, you showed us who you were. And you came down and you lived out the perfect life that we could not live. God, I thank you that you did that. And I thank you that you through your Holy Spirit and through the death and resurrection of Jesus, are creating in us a new person. Lord, your word says if any, anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. And so, God, these are things that you are creating in us as we walk in your spirit. And so, Father, this morning I pray that you would have mercy on us and that you would begin that work of changing us from the inside out so that we would be more merciful, Lord, that we would be more like you, and that we would experience your mercy. God, I thank you so much for your goodness and your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. I, uh, I love the story of Jordan Manji. Uh, Jordan Manji is a young girl that uh, I had a chance to share. Our, uh, the video, or her testimony is on, is on YouTube, and we, we watched it at, our, at Edge a few, uh, a few months ago. Jordan Manji grew up as an atheist in an atheist home, and uh, she basically, you know, had, uh, you know, this idea that, you know, you become the best version of you and your performance it determines your value. And she was very competitive. Her identity was based on how smart she was. She was very smart in school. She was one of those people that's kind of like a straight-A student, valedictorian. And when she was in middle school, she began, uh, because she believed that there was no God, she began challenging her classmates. Uh, and she would point out all the contradictions in the Bible. And she would try to challenge her Christian classmates to, um, to say, well, what, you know, what about this? What about that? And... Uh, um, as she uh, went into high school, she began to ask the question, ask bigger questions like, you know, who am I? Where do I come from? How, how do I determine right from wrong? Where does morality come from? If not from God, why is something right or wrong? Why do I believe in human rights? She was a big, uh, passionate person, uh, you know, on the social activism side. Uh, and she said, well, I'll wait until college till I get some of these answers, these questions answered. And she went to Harvard, got into Harvard, you know, again, just 
killing it. But she says when she got to Harvard, her sense of identity about performance was destroyed because she was not the smartest person in the room anymore. And that kind of shook her a little bit. And she said, who am I? If it's not my ability, if it's not my smarts, if it's not my looks, if it's not my family that makes me valuable, what is it that makes me valuable? And a Christian friend kept asking her questions like, where does your morality come from? Does it emerge from nowhere? And she says in her testimony, she says she started to see cracks in her framework, uh, in, her, in her theological framework. She enrolled in a meta-ethics class to help her shore up her beliefs, but instead she was assigned a short essay by C.S. Lewis. And uh, in, the, in that essay, it talked about how God is the good. He is goodness. And our lives are good when we, when we strive to imitate God. So she started reading the Bible again. And the part that she read was the Sermon on the Mount. And it, it, just, it just shocked her. He said, you know, this time I wasn't reading it to critique it, but she felt like it was critiquing her. And she said, as an atheist, she always felt that she was living a better life than Christians. You know, she wasn't sleeping around. She wasn't constantly cussing. She wasn't constantly doing all those outward things that sometimes people judge, you know, Christians and non-Christians by. Um, but she began, as she read the Sermon on the Mount, it began to convict her. Because she realized that on the inside, she was not humble. She was not meek. In fact, she was very arrogant. <laughs> she thought very highly of herself. Uh, and, but she, she realized that she was not a good person. And she came to the conclusion that maybe I'm not the best person to run my life. Well, she kept reading the scriptures and the gospels, and she got to John 19 and the crucifixion scene. And one of her favorite books as growing up uh, as a kid was The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. How many of you are familiar with The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe? Yeah. She didn't know it was written by a person who was trying to show the reality of Jesus Christ. And she, when she saw Jesus on the cross and was reading John 19, she's like, no, Aslan, no. He willingly went and gave his life. She said The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe was just a story, but now she read it, The Crucifixion. Aslan is Jesus, and she realized that she was Edmund, arrogant but redeemed. It immediately clicked, she said, that I was Edmund. He was dying for my own sake. She said she had a totally new radical way of looking at it. She realized her own sinfulness and started crying. She said she realized that Edmund, she was like Edmund and that she was powerless. She needed help. She said, I recognize my own incurable need for forgiveness because of my sin, and that could only come through Jesus Christ. But that was still not enough to break her, her deeply rooted need for intellectual certainty. She poured over everything. And I don't know if any of you have ever done this. And I know I went through a period in my life where I had a strong desire to know, is this really true? Is the resurrection true? Can I trust the Bible? What about all the other religions? She went through that and she said, one of the things that helped me the most was to eliminate my pride, was to admit that I was wrong all those years as an atheist. But when she came to the love of God, that just is what gripped her. She said, when I thought of love, what it really was, I saw the embodiment of love on the cross. God is love. God is truth. And so God is goodness. She said, if I want to try this, I cannot do it half-heartedly. I have to go all the way. And she gave her life to Jesus Christ and began to realize that she is valuable, not because of her performance, but because of that she's loved by a God that died for her and forgave her and was merciful. I love that story because it kind of illustrates really what's going on here in the Sermon on the Mount. As I just said, there's, um, 
There's a lot of things happening here. But the reality is, is the Sermon on the Mount is meant to be a mirror. It's kind of like the law uh, that, God, that, that was given in the Old Testament. God knows we can never fulfill the law. We can never live up to these things in our own strength. We need a Redeemer. We need Christ. And the question is, how do I become merciful? I need to be touched and impacted by the one who has that mercy and displayed that mercy. And his name is Jesus Christ. I want to uh, help you understand a little bit what mercy is. But before I do that, uh, I just want to give you the idea that mercy, and you know, we're talking about upside down, how this is such a radical idea. One historian wrote this, a popular Roman philosopher called mercy the disease of the soul. Uh, in the first century, the Jews in which the Bible was written to were occupied by the Romans. So this idea of mercy was called the disease of the soul. It was the supreme sign of weakness. Mercy was a sign that you did not have what it takes to be a real man, and especially a real Roman. The Romans glorified manly courage, strict justice, firm discipline, and above all, absolute power. They looked down on mercy because mercy to them was weakness, and it embodied all that was weak above uh, limited, uh, human limitations. So this whole idea of mercy, showing mercy, even in the New Testament time when the readers were hearing this, this was radical. It was radically different. And yet, as you look at Scripture, every aspect often of the character of God and the, and the actions and the words of Jesus are about him being merciful. God loves you as he wraps you in his arms. Remember the story of the prodigal son? What did, God, what did the father do when he saw his son that was long, way long off? Did he sit there and count all the things his son had done wrong? No, he ran. One of the words for compassion in the New Testament is splagma. It has this idea of from the inside out, just inside, this strong movement of compassion within you. Mercy is the fruit of compassion. And over and over again, you see in the Gospels, Jesus is overcome with compassion. This word mercy that you, that you see here, it's a lamos, and it's used over 28 times in the New Testament. Almost every time in the gospel, it's used when the beggars, when the, when the people who are the lepers, the, the, the woman who is, who is um, uh, struggling with, with hemorrhage, hemorrhage uh, bleeding for over 12 years, all these people are coming to Jesus, and what's the prayer that they always say to him? And they cry out to him, Lord, have mercy on me, have mercy on me. And every time you see Jesus immediately respond, what do you want me to do for you? Even with the woman who was hemorrhaged and bleeding, he's walking through a crowd and she touches him and immediately it's like, okay, I, his knee-jerk reaction is compassion and mercy. And I want to ask you an important question as we get into this this morning. How do you see God? What is your reflex reaction to when you think about God. You know, I often sometimes see God as the cop, you know. And I don't know about you, but when I'm driving and I see a cop, uh, my, my, uh, my immediate reaction is not like, oh, yay, I'm glad you're there. You know, I'm like, hey, am I doing everything right? Slow down, you know. Uh, what's going on, you know. And there's people in, the, in our country, when they see a cop, they don't feel safe. And I, I love the police, and I love what they do, and I think they're awesome. They serve and they protect, and I think we should support them. But our knee-jerk reaction very often is, is when we see the police, oh, something's wrong. And I think a lot of us take that 
that, that cop image and we kind of project it on God and we say, that's kind of how I see God. You know, oh, I'm going to church. Oh, yeah, I got to deal with all my, my junk or I got to hide it. You know, I got to admit it. You know, it's like, oh my gosh, it's this and this. Instead of seeing a God like Jesus displayed, a God that is attracted to our hurt and our pain. The word mercy, as we're going to unpack in a moment, has the idea of being drawn to people in need. When you have mercy or practice mercy. One, uh, Dane Ortland said, his is a love that cannot be held back when he sees his people in pain. You say, well, doesn't God feel wrath over sin? Yes, but the point is this. As you read the Gospels and you look at Jesus, that's not his first instinctive emotion. His first instinctive emotion is compassion. And before you throw the Old Testament at me, I'm going to throw Jonah right back at you. Because why didn't Jonah want to go to Nineveh to go and speak to the Assyrians who were killing and raping and killing some of his own people and may have destroyed some of his own family members? Why didn't he want to go? It wasn't because he was afraid that the Assyrians would kill him. He was convinced that if they repented, God would have mercy on them and he would forgive them and he would be compassionate. And that's why he stood there in his self-righteousness and said, I'm not going to go. I am not going to go. I'm going to go on the boat as far as I can. And I share that with you because a lot of times people say the God of the Old Testament is full of wrath and on the God of Jesus, you know, is, is, is mercy. No. When you read the Old Testament over and over again, his mercy is there. Let me share some verses with you. Because mercy and justice mingle together, kind of like grace and truth. All right? Psalm 85, 10 and 11 says this. Mercy and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed. Truth shall spring out of the earth and righteousness shall look down from heaven. Keep that verse up there if you can for a little while. I love that because, you know, I've often said Jesus was full. In John 1.17, Jesus was full of grace and he was full of truth. He had, he, God embodies both of those perfectly. And, 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 and as we grow to become more like Christ, which is the purpose of the Christian life, to become more like Jesus Christ from the inside out, that's what we want to have. And I know some of us are big on truth. You know, we're big. And if, and if you're living today in today's world and our culture, there's a lot of lies. And it's so tempting to not trust anyone and to be like, this is the truth. And, there, and when people lie, what do we want? We want justice because there's people that are being treated unjustly. And, and, we, and we serve a God that is just and that desires justice. But we also serve a God that's incredibly gracious and merciful. And Jesus embodied both of those. Look at Micah 6.8. You ever uh, want a verse that kind of embodies what the command of what God wants from us? You ever wonder, like, what, God, what do you want from me? Micah 6.8, write this down. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy. Not just to do mercy, but to love it. Act justly and to walk humbly with your God. It's a relationship. Sometimes I, I wonder what, I, and I shouldn't do this because it's probably pastor guilt, or not pastor guilt, but pastor whatever. But I wonder what you're thinking and what you're doing and I was, sometimes I'm convicted of myself what I'm doing and thinking during the songs, during the praisings, the worship, you know? 
because it, it's so easy to fall into this idea that, okay, they're singing a nice song. I'm going to let that song minister to me. Or it's a great performance. I like the song. You know, and sometimes we just sit there and we watch it and we, and we listen to it. But w w the point of the song is it's a prayer of praise. It's, it's designed to be a prayer. Lord, you are here. You are speaking and healing. Lord, remember your people. Remember your promises. We're crying out to God. And the Bible says God inhabits the praises of his people. And I share that with you because it says in this verse, to walk humbly with your God. It's a relationship. And I think sometimes we can forget about that, and we think it's just kind of church becomes like a spectator sport or a performance I put down this, mercy without justice is weak and a subversive of moral order, okay? Those of you who are parents, you know, some of us are like, you know, it's very popular today to be like child-centered parenting. Whatever Johnny wants, Johnny gets, you know? Uh, that's mercy without justice, you know? It's kind of like permissive parenting, all right? Often does so much harm, so much harm. But the opposite is true. Justice without mercy is moral severity, revolting to both God and humans. This is that strict authoritarianism that says, no, you will be like this. You know, you can do nothing wrong. There's no forgiveness. You know, toe the line. You know, you must do this. And so obviously there needs to be a balance. And that perfect balance is in Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Mercy with justice. So what is mercy? I got a, a few definitions of it. Uh, Millard Erickson, famous Christian theologian, said this, God's mercy is his tender-hearted, loving compassion for his people. It is his tenderness of heart toward the needy. That idea of, of, uh, of mercy in the Old Testament, there's three different words for it. And uh, one of them has the idea of it being uh, is rakam. It means to love or have compassion, to have uh, a disposition of mercy. There's another one, kaprath, which means ransom. It's associated with the mercy seat in Scripture. How many of you have ever heard of the mercy seat? You might not know this, but uh, the Ark of the Covenant, it was in Exodus 25. The mercy seat was the top of the covenant. It was gold. It was a, the lid of the covenant, and it had two cherub angels on it. And the mercy seat was the place where God showed his glory. It was also the place where once a year the high priest would come and sprinkle the blood of the lamb and make atonement for the people. It was the place where um, God was reconciling himself to us, or we were being reconciled to him by that sprinkle. Well, in the New Testament, what is our mercy seat? It's the cross. It's Jesus on the cross. In fact, interestingly enough, the same word there for ransom is the same word in the Greek, helostrion, which means propitiation. And in Romans 3, uh, uh, Paul says Christ is that atonement. atonement. He's that, uh, he, makes us, he takes the substitute. He takes our place for our sin. So it's, it's like this idea that, you know, the mercy seat, we, none of us are good enough to sit and to be in God's glory. But God has made a way through his justice. Jesus satisfied the wrath of God. But I want you just to get a glimpse into the heart of God this morning. God's mercy is his tender-hearted, loving compassion for his people. Another definition for mercy is mercy is the compassionate treatment of those in distress, especially when it is within one's power to punish or harm them. Okay, the word mercy actually comes from a Latin word, which means merced or merces, which means price paid. 
interestingly enough. It has the connotation of forgiveness, benevolence, and kindness. But you're not, you're not showing kindness to people just because, oh, I feel sorry for you. It's not kindness like, oh, well, I have a lot to give, so here's my leftovers. Yeah, I'm going to send some money to Red Cross this week, which is a wonderful thing. It's often used in a religious context for giving alms, caring for the sick or for the poor. But in a legal sense, it often refers to compassionate behavior from a person in power, such as when a judge shows clemency or leniency or mercy during sentence, sentencing. Mercy appears in the Bible as it relates to forgiveness or withholding punishment. Remember, uh, uh, David said, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. So how does mercy different from compassion? Well, they're, they're, they're similar. They're intertwined. I said mercy is the fruit of compassion. Okay, Compassion is more than a feeling concerned about someone in distress or caring about a person's misfortune. There's action associated with compassion, and that action is mercy. Okay, I think I have somewhere the difference. I don't know if you've ever heard this, the difference between grace and mercy. I think it's important because you know, Hebrews 4.16 says that we, you know, Jesus provides us both grace and mercy. And we're just saying your grace is enough, and we're saying his mercy is more. Grace is when you get something you don't deserve. It's a gift. Salvation was a gift for us. The fact that Jesus came down and died for us and offers us all salvation. Uh, I believe every aspect of what we have is a gift. I think my life is a gift. The fact that I'm healthy is a gift. And we live in a broken world, and I can't, I'm not entitled to anything, really. So the biblical view is that really, you know, your grace is enough. When we were just singing that, it's like, oh, my gosh, that's the most awesome thing. Because what I'm saying is I can be satisfied in God's grace because he has given me so much. Mercy, it, grace is when you get what you don't deserve. Mercy is very often when you don't get what you do deserve. Which is it easier? Mercy is like, you know what? I deserve judgment. I deserve punishment. But I'm not going to get it because of God's mercy. Because he takes, he absorbs the pain for me. He absorbs it all for me. Let me give you a, a little a story that kind of relates to that. Uh, Jackie Pollinger is a missionary and church planner in Hong Kong. Some of you might remember her from the Alpha videos. She has a remarkable life story. It's told in her autobiography, Chasing the Dragon. One particular incident occurred in the early years of Jackie's ministry that illustrates the point. A young man named Ah Ping had joined the Triads, which was a gang. These gangs controlled crime in Hong Kong. And uh, he joined it when he was only 12 years old. He soon came to be supported financially by a 14-year-old prostitute. And when Jackie showed up and began to reach out in mercy and kindness to Ah Ping and his associates, he told her in no uncertain terms, you'd better go. Just get out of here. We are no good. Go find some people who will appreciate what you're doing and be grateful for your kindness. We will only hurt you and exploit you and kick you around. Why do you stay? Why do you care? I don't know if you went into a Imagine if we went out to serve Saturday on Saturday and we, and we encountered a group of people who said that to us. Uh, we'd be tempted to leave, wouldn't we? Jackie and, and her team did not. They kept loving, kept ministering. They said, you know what? We stay because that's what Jesus... She said, she said this, I stay because that's what Jesus did for me. I didn't want him either. 
but he didn't wait until I got good and wanted him. He died for me while I was his hateful enemy. He loved me and forgave me. He loves you too. So they watched, and they continued to minister, and they continued to share. At another point, Ah Ping said, no way. Nobody could love us like that. We rape and fight and steal and stab. Nobody could love us. Jackie explained how Jesus didn't love what they did, but that he still loved sinners and was willing to forgive them. Ah Ping was shattered. He sat down finally on the street corner and received Christ as his Savior. Not long after his conversion, Ah Ping was attacked by a gang of youths and was beaten mercilessly with, with bats. However, when his friends vowed revenge, Ah Ping said, No, I'm a Christian now. I don't want you to fight back and retaliate. What transformed Ah Ping? What accounted for his readiness to forgive his enemies? It was his realization that Jesus Christ had absorbed in himself the consequences of Ah Ping's sins. What does forgiveness, what does mercy look like? It's deciding to live with the painful consequences of another person's sin. You're going to have to live with it anyway, so you might as well do it without the bitterness and rancor and hatred that threaten to destroy your soul. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. When we experience how much God is merciful to us, we have the ability to show mercy to others. A few years ago, I, um, I, I, and I didn't talk to my wife about this before, and that might be a, a red flag, but a few years ago, it was either in our condo in, in Chicago or it was when we first moved in in Mundelein. We had one of those showers. That, did you ever get into a shower? And uh, it just, um, it, uh, it hurts. There's a lot of water pressure, but you're kind of like, ah, oh, ee, ooh, you know. And it's, just, it's painful coming out because it's not working on all cylinders. There's just like one or two streams. All the, all the pressure is coming through a couple streams. You ever have that? Anybody ever have, am I the only one that has experienced this in a lifetime? Uh, the kids going to camp, I don't think anybody's going to shower tonight, but it would be fun if they did. Um, they'll probably experience something like this at a camp. I've, I've experienced it many times at a camp. Um, but it's just like, you know, what's going on with the shower head? And for the long time, the longest time, because I'm, you know, I'm, not, I'm the opposite of Mr. Fix-It um, and the handyman. I'm, you know, like, what, what, what do I do here? When something breaks in my house, usually it stays broken for a while uh, <laughs> until you can't bear with it anymore. Um, so, uh, but finally, I, I found out, you know, I, well, I need to replace the shower head. Well, no, you don't. You take the, the shower head off, and what, what's happened is, is there's been a buildup of minerals in there, of limestone. Okay, and, uh, and what it does is it blocks the water. So what do you have to do to get the limestone out? It's not like you can sit there and just like shake it out. It's really thick. It's really dried. You have to soak it in, 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 in vinegar, really. And sometimes it takes up to six to eight hours. Yeah. And, it, it, and it's, you know, it's a big ordeal, but it's worth it. Because when you put the shower head back on, you've got a nice, you know, every, every, every hole is working, everything's coming out, and it's very even. And I share that illustration with you because I feel like when it, when it comes to this whole mercy thing, a lot of us have got some issues with receiving from God. We've got some mineral buildup. You say, what's that? It might be some bitterness. It might be some disappointment. It might be that someone really hurt you. And maybe someone in the church did. Or maybe just something happened that you're upset with God about. 
And so every aspect of when you get into, not the literal shower, but when you come into God's presence like this morning, there's awkwardness, there's pain. There's like, oh, no, no, I don't like that song. I don't like those people. They're rubbing me the wrong way. I don't like that preacher. And we start complaining about things, and we don't realize the real issue is we've got some issues with God. And this, this passage is saying, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. What that's saying is, is when you receive God's mercy and you allow God, and I, I would say this, and this, this is kind of the one of the applications this morning, is to soak in the truth and the character and the promises and the word of God. That's one of the values of coming to church every Sunday and hearing God's word. When we soak in it, he gives us the ability. He will flow through us, and he will give us the ability to forgive, to be merciful, to care about others. I think a lot of us get jaded by various things, and we become like a limestone cowboy. Yeah. I figured maybe a few of you would get that. All right. All right, I think we need to get into the sermon. Uh, people in the tech are like, hey, where's he going here? All right, is there a sermon still? Yeah, okay, let's get into this. Where are we going? All right. You're like, what has he got here? Let me give you a few verses on, on mercy, and then we'll, I'm going to give you some practical things here. Number one, I love this verse, 1 Peter 1, 3. And, this, and let this soak. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he, according to his great mercy, According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. I think we often skip little things, but don't skip that. Titus 3.5, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own what? Mercy by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. You see that water analogy coming through? There you go. Matthew 9. Jesus was always being, um, he was always being uh, blasted by the Pharisees, the religious people, for hanging out with sinners, tax collectors. He was a, called a, a glutton. He was called a friend of sinners. Why? Because he had a heart of mercy. Look at this. This is right where they're, they're yelling at him because he's calling Matthew to be his disciple. And they're like, come on, why, how can you be holy and perfect and just and hang out with these nasty people? And he, when he heard this, he said this, Matthew 9, 12 and 13, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. That quote, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, comes from Hosea 6.6. 6. If you don't know Hosea, you've got to read it sometimes. Hosea was a prophet that God called to go marry a prostitute. And he married a prostitute and had kids with her. And she was constantly unfaithful with, to him. And it was all to, me, to be a word picture to show what Israel was to God and how God was the one who married them and they were continually unfaithful. And so in Hosea 6, he says, your love is like the morning dew on the grass. It lasts for a little while, but when the sun comes up, it goes away. And he, and he tells the people in Hosea, he says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And what he's saying is, is that you come and you give your burnt offerings, you show up for church, you give your tithes, you do your religious thing, but 
your love for me. You have no, no desire for the things that I desire. You're not practicing mercy. Your love is, is just fading. Strong. But then so Jesus turns it around and he says to the religious people, you guys are doing all these religious things and you think you got it right, but these people, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And then one more, Hebrews 4.16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. It's one of my favorite verses. I know some of you are afraid to pray. Uh, after church today, we're going to do something different. That we're, and it's, a, it's a movement, a movement of men who are seeking God are going to just start praying after this church service and just praying and maybe and they're pray whatever the Holy Spirit has ministered to them through the sermon, through the service, or through anything else. If you want to join them, Jesse, uh, who was up here earlier, our elders, is gonna, it's just going to be an open time of prayer. Maybe five minutes, not very long, okay? But a lot of us are afraid to pray. We're afraid to come to prayer meetings. Some of us don't know how to pray at home. And I love this verse because look what it says. We can go with confidence. No matter whether, you, no, whether you're messed up, whether you're having a bad day, even if you're struggling with sin, no matter where you're at, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We walk in the light. We can go to him because of what Jesus did. All right, let's, uh, let's dive into this. I think we uh, need to get into some of the heart of what, where we're going here. Number one, well, what is, let me give you three ways to practice mercy. You say, blessed are those who are merciful. What does that look like? All right, number one, Christ's followers show mercy by helping others in need. Okay, what does mercy look like? It means helping others in need. Throughout the whole Old Testament, there's always this emphasis on caring for the foreigners, caring for the poor, caring for the orphans, okay? Uh, it's, I can read lots of verses on that. James 1.27 says, Pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this, to care for orphans and, in, and widows in their misfortune and to keep oneself unstained by the world. You can't read scripture without seeing that God's heart goes out to those who are in need. And I know some of us can get jaded by the limestone and say, well, they're, not, they're poor because of their choices. The scripture says over and over again in Galatians 2.10, he told Paul and Barnabas to remember the poor. Acts 2.45, the early church said they, all should, they, they gave to the poor among them. Jesus said you'll always have the poor among you. Look at what he said in Luke 4. He said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. This is his, like his life ministry verse. He's quoting it from Isaiah of what the Messiah would do. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and the regaining of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. We as Christians should be about serving those in need. I read this quote this week from uh, one of the leaders of the president of Training Leaders International, and he says that he, they, they, they deal with refugees. I don't know if you've ever gone on missions trips where you've ministered to refugees. And he said that the, the refugees, while visiting Christians in Athens, he says, I, can I can't tell you how many times I've heard this from Iranian and Afghan believers. They, they, they always say something like this. I left my country, and everywhere on my way to Greece, there were Christians 
As I left my country, Muslims were literally shooting at me and my family. But in Turkey and Greece, Christians have welcomed me. They've clothed me and they've fed me. When I got off the boat, it was Christians that were passing out food and water. When I came to Athens, it was Christians who gave me a shower, helped me with a medical issue, and gave me a meal with spices from my home. I became a Christian because they were so different than Muslims. You know, if you look through history, and I know people uh, point to the Crusades and all that, you know, but really when you look through history of the Red Cross and all the ministries, Samaritan's Purse, it's the people who were motivated by Christian love that set up the hospitals, that set up everything to help the poor. And when people do stuff like people did in the Crusades or the witches' trials, they're not following the Jesus of Scripture. They're following their own thing. But the Christian, when you follow the God of the Bible, it's going to involve helping people in need. Number two, and, the, and these get progressively harder. <laughs> Number two, Christ followers show mercy by helping others trapped in sin. It's so easy to help somebody who's struggling materially, but when they're struggling spiritually, that's difficult, especially if they're struggling with sin and they don't want to be, they don't want to be called out on it. The merciful thing to do is to speak the truth in, in love. Yeah. Galatians 6.2 says, Brothers and sisters, if a person is discovered in some sin, you who are spiritual, restore such a person, person in a spirit of gentleness. Pay close attention to yourselves so that you are not tempted to. Carrying one another's burdens. And in this way, you fulfill the law of Christ. I was in a church once where the, the pastor had a moral failure. You can learn a lot about the character of a church when that happens. And there's obviously a lot of hurt, a lot of disappointment. And there's also a lot of self-righteous people that judge up and they shoot their wounded. And that's not good. That's not the biblical way. That's why you read the New Testament. He says we should be merciful and, and sna snatch people who are wandering away. Come, come alongside people who are struggling. Sharing the gospel is the most merciful act we can do. If you want to help somebody in their sin, share the gospel. And then the third one, Christ followers show mercy by forgiving those who sinned against them. Christ followers help show, how do we practice mercy? Helping those in need. Helping those who are trapped in sin. And this is the toughest one, isn't it? Colossians 3.13 says, Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. The command in the New Testament is always love as he loved you. As you receive from him love. As he forgive, forgave you, forgive. But if something's blocking me from receiving that forgiveness, if I don't realize how much I need his mercy, then it's going to be really hard for me to show mercy to someone else. Many times we say, I forgive you, but I don't ever want to see you or talk to you again. <laughs> we, don't, we, don't want to do, uh, we don't want to do our part. We want God to do his part, but, uh, but we don't want to do our part, right? That's kind of how, often how it is, isn't it? But that's not how God forgives us. God says the scriptures, God says he remembers our sins no more. Now, he doesn't really forget them, but it says that he won't hold them against them, us anymore. Forgiveness is letting go of the right to get back. It's absorbing the consequences of what that person did and saying, okay, I'm not going to get you back. I have the right to get you back, but I'm going to let go of it. 
Probably the best story about this is when Peter came up to Jesus and said, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? And Jesus said, I tell you, not seven times, but what? Seventy, yeah, seventy times, seventy-seven times, or seventy times seven, yeah. And what he was—he was not giving a literal amount. He was saying, "No, the law says up to three or four. And then if you, Peter was going a little bit above the law and saying seven. And Peter is saying, and Jesus is saying, "No, unlimited forgiveness." unlimited forgiveness. And then he tells the story of the unmerciful servant. The kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And you might know that story. I won't read it. It's in Matthew 18. But it's a powerful story because this man is, owes like a million dollars to the king and he begs and begs for mercy and the king gives him mercy and lets him go. And what does he do? He runs out on the streets and somebody who owes him 200 bucks, he has him thrown into jail. And everybody hears about it, and it's like, dude, you know, King, you, 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 you forgave this guy a million bucks, and he's out there treating everybody else like garbage. So the king gets ticked off and brings him back in and says some of the harshest words to him. The master called the servant in, you wicked servant. I canceled all that debt of, of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. And then one of the scariest verses in the Bible, verse 35, this is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Wow, that's strong. Jesus in the, in the, in the Lord's Prayer said, if you forgive others, for, forgive. It's interesting that the Lord's Prayer doesn't say forgive us as you forgave us. It says, forgive others, forgive me as I have forgiven others. That is so strong. You say, well, that's really hard, Tony. Yeah, it's supernatural. It is. It's, it, the only way you can forgive is being connected to God. Let me get, share a quote with you, Tim, Tim Keller's quote. Forgiveness does not originate in us. It begins with God. That's what the slave who refused to forgive didn't understand. It was not about him. It's about God. We do not choose to forgive. We only choose to share the forgiveness we've already received. Then we choose again, and then again, and then yet again. For most of us, forgiveness is a process that we live into. Now look what else he says. Then we choose again, and then again, and then again. For most of us, forgiveness is a process that we live into. Sometimes, however, we just can't. The pain is too much, the wound too raw, the memories too real. On those days, we choose to want to forgive. Some days we choose to want to want to forgive. And then there are those days that all we can do is choose to want to want to forgive. But we choose because that's the choice that Christ made. Mercy makes room for forgiveness. Mercy is what God has chosen to give us. Well, what's the blessing? What's the blessing? The blessing is this. Christ's promise is that God will help the merciful in times of need. Proverbs 19.17 says, The one who is gracious to the poor lends to the Lord, and the Lord will repay him for his good deed. If you're taking notes, Matthew 6, 1-3 talks about how when you give 
to those in need, give secretly. Don't be like the Pharisees because they get their reward by everybody seeing them give. But you get your reward from God your Father in heaven. Jesus said that in Matthew 6. And then in Luke 6, he said the same thing. He said, forgive your enemies, love your enemies. Let me read it. I think it'll be up for you guys. Luke 6, love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting you to get anything back. Then your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High, because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. If you have your Bible, underline that. That's verse 35. The God of the universe, who is just and holy, is also kind. Not to the religious only, not to the Christians only, but to the ungrateful and the wicked. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. Now, again, I, I, I'm not saying to do this in your own strength. I hope you don't hear me yet. I hope you don't hear moralism here this morning. I, I hope you hear supernaturalism. I hope you hear the gospel. The gospel is I can't do it on my own. I need Jesus. But the gospel is also the Holy Spirit working in and through us to be able to do this. This is what it looks like to be in the kingdom, okay? Let me skip to my last uh, set of, uh, th set of uh, verses. I think we need to move on. Uh, how do I become more merciful? Let me give, me give you three, three or four practical things here, all right? And, and then we'll wrap up. Appreciate your, uh, your patience here. To practice God's mercy, I, I, we need to remember our own sin and our desperate need. Really, it starts with us to consider us. Uh, we need to consider how stupid and inconsiderate someone else is. Not someone else's, but forget. We, we, we do consider. We often think about how inconsiderate others are, but we forget times in our past when we were stupid and inconsiderate. We condemn the person who cut us off in track it, traffic, and then yet we forget the mistakes that we've made in driving. Forgetting our own sins and failures leads to harshness in judging others. Uh, in fact, we tend to condemn others as a means of building ourselves up. We say to ourselves, I can't believe they did that, or I could, do the, I could do that better, or I would never do that. That's like the Pharisees. It is one who deeply mourns over their sin. Do you see how this is all, this verse, blessed are those who are merciful, do you see how the other ones all lead into this? When we mourn over our sin, when we're poor in spirit, when we recognize that it's not about us, we humble ourselves. When we mourn over our sin, uh, when we... Uh, are meek. We choose meekness, okay? Uh, and then when we choose to hunger and thirst for righteousness, well, there's nobody righteous except Christ. So we hunger and thirst for Christ, and then he fills us, and then we can become merciful. How do I become merciful? Remember our own sin and my own desperate need. Number two, practice God's mercy. We need to identify with others. That's so significant. This is exactly how Christ did for us. He, he didn't just stand in heaven. God didn't just yell up in heaven and say, get your lives right. He came down and he identified with us. We need to identify with others. When I was a teenager, when I was a young kid going to school, we had a, a bus ministry in our Sunday school, and they bus kids in from all over. This, this person, Dave Reamer, he had a heart for evangelism. So he'd bring the hardest kids in, and we brought kids in from children's homes to our Sunday school. Well, guess what happened? 
I got into fights with them. <laughs> People got into fights. There was always a fight breaking out in Sunday school every Sunday. Why? Because these kids were just really coming from difficult backgrounds. And I just remember saying, why, why are we bringing these kids in? Why are we bringing these kids in? But then when Christ saved me and I went to Moody and I came out of Moody, I, one of my first jobs was a chaplain at Lydia Children's Home in Chicago ministering to abused and neglected kids, kids that had come, similar kids that had come to our church, and I began to identify and understand why they were the way they were. That's what we need to do. It changes your perspective when you walk a mile in someone's shoes, when you not just sympathize, but empathize and, and identify with people. I hope you're not at the point in your life where you're so much in an ivory tower or in your garage or in your suburban house, and I'm talking to myself, that we don't identify with people's pain and struggle. To practice God's mercy, we need to remember our own sin, our need, identify with others, and we need to just cultivate a love for others. We need to cultivate a love of others. 1 Corinthians 13 says, if I, if I, gain all, if I give away all my possessions to the poor and I have not love, I gain nothing. And so, really, it's about having a, a genuine love. And it's, he says, I love mercy, love people. And then the last one is this. To practice God's mercy, we need to remember God's promise to the merciful. A generous person will prosper. Whoever refreshes others will be refreshed. I know some of you who've been involved in mercy ministry, sometimes it's easy to get burnt out. And those of us who are involved in church ministry, it's easy to get burnt out. And we need to be reminded that, you know what? We need to go back to the source. And God promises that when you expend yourself on the sake, for the sake of the poor or expend yourself in making disciples, in sharing Christ, he's got your back. He'll never leave you nor forsake you. And he's going to show you mercy. And that mercy isn't just when you go to heaven. It's mercy by giving you what you need. He'll replenish your soul as long as you are bathing and soaking in him and allowing, going to him for the strength to give and show mercy to others. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much, God, that you promise to show mercy to us if, Lord, we will humble ourselves, mourn over our sin, recognize that you alone are righteous, and recognize that what you did on the cross was you died for our sins. You paid the price. You satisfied the wrath of God for us. Lord, I pray for any person here who has never come to the point of recognizing how much you love them and how much you care about them and what you did on the cross to show that great love. I pray, Father, that your Holy Spirit would be at work to reveal yourself today and that you would give us the courage, give our, anybody here the courage to put their trust in you. Father, I pray right now for people who are struggling with severe hurts. God, there's some major limestone buildup. And I ask God that you would allow them to soak in your mercy and your goodness and in your love. And I pray that you would reveal your love to them so that they could love others, so we could love others the way you love us, so that we could forgive the way you have forgiven us, God. Lord, I pray that this church would not be about petty things where people divide over things that just don't matter. But I pray that under the love and the banner and the cross of Christ, we would be united. 
And I pray that as we do Serve Saturday, but not just once a month, I pray that our lifestyle, each person here would have a lifestyle of practicing mercy to our neighbors, Lord, to our friends, to our, our schoolmates, to our workmates, Lord. People who are ungrateful and wicked at times, just like we were. God, I pray that we would be kind to them and show mercy. Lord, we need your strength and we need your encouragement to do that. God, I'm so thankful that death was arrested, that you are the one who, who conquered death and you conquered sin. And so, Father, we want to praise you for that right now. In Jesus' name.